Folks, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show, and what an honor it is to continue the conversation with uh, really just a, an iconic multi-instrumentalist and uh, a cat I feel very spiritually connected to, uh, Jorge Calderon. Welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. I'm glad to be here, Jake. You know, uh, like, what is your, what are your intentions when you create music that you deem that you want to put on an album? I mean, it, to me, like, I don't know if you ever learned this lesson. I, I just have learned over time that I try to approach things <clears throat> with intentions only and no expectations. Because ultimately, expectations, you will get let down. But I just wonder, when you create art today, like your upcoming CD... What are your intentions for making music these days? It's the same. I follow my heart and, and my instinct and the passion for to do this. Because, you know, like I find myself telling people, it's like I, I can't help but do what I do. I wish I could do something else. I would be living in a, in a, <laughs> in a beach in Malibu with a giant house. But I, I just follow my heart, my passion is I get up and I have a song in my mind and I, and I have to write the lyrics or I have to write the music and I, you know, that's all I got that comes to me from this place that is all within me and, and comes in from outside too, it's like an antenna. So, and the passion for rock and roll, rhythm, rhythm and blues, uh, that's and I, it just, I can't stop doing that. Uh, I guess I'll stop when, I, when the meter runs. Yeah, out. man, just do it till the end, you know? Exactly. So right now, what I'm doing in this record that I'm doing, it's just, it's called Love and Dancing. And it's a lot of a lot of love songs and, uh, and a lot of uh, uh, kind of up-tempo, uh, like dancing kind of groove songs. Sure. They all, they're all in the vein of, of love. I, I, I had I, my... My wife of, of many, many, many years uh, passed away in, in 2020. And then I, after that, I kind of wanted to dedicate this album of, uh, because all these songs that I have writ- had written through the years with her that had to do about us that I hadn't had a, a chance to record. So um, so I just went in and said, okay, I'm going to do the, kind of like a theme album. And I'm gonna, not a tearjerker or anything like that. Just like celebrate, celebrate that how lucky. Celebrate her life. Celebrate are. her life. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So it's you know, and it's all all about her, but it's all about about love and, and having a good time. And so mm-hmm. that's what that's what it's, it's been, and it's very um, rhythmic. And uh, I mean, there's ballads, but there's very rhythmic. To where I come from. Why? So where you come from? Yeah. No, I understand. I, I want you to talk about uh, the people where you come from, Puerto Rico, and then also, uh, you know, other Middle Islands. Like the the passion for following your heart as opposed to materialism. Where does exactly. it, where does that come from? I mean, it seems evident on the surface. It's just a lot of repression and economic policies and stuff, but at the same time, the people just are wired to love more than crave material wealth? Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people that crave material wealth. No, I'm so, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm just saying like, I yeah. craved it myself, but, right. but I can't help but do what I do. I cannot <sighs> become something else just to get a buck. And, I, and I've done some gigs that I regretted. You know, I was hired to do certain songs for a certain Disney thing, and I hated it. I didn't of it. I did it because I needed 2500 bucks years ago. Yeah. And I did it. I hated every minute of it, and I said, why did I do that? But, but, but what I do is what I do. And I learned a lesson after doing that record that you like uh, at Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers, City Music. I learned a lesson because I did it. I put everything I had, and I was young. I was like 27 or 28. So, uh, and then they dropped me, you know, and, and then I was, they dropped me off the label. I thought I was going to get another chance to do something even better. So <clears throat> that was a shock to me because I was sitting in there and I was watching the roster of people that they had in, in, in the, on the label 
and and there were a lot of people that had nurtured that had started with with kind of like a weaker album and then they kept them and they did a better album and finally got got somewhere with yeah them. it's called artist development yeah there was none of that with yeah, you yeah and, and none of that with me it was just like I was dropped from the second floor dude and I and I just went wow, wow. and it shocked me wow, and then I was man. bitter and yeah. I was all this stuff and then. So that was one aspect of it, saying, okay, well, what I do, maybe not, not commercial enough or not, not for, for, for the majority of people. And then hanging out with, uh, having hung out with, with Stevie and Lindsay and be, that they, they joined sure. back and I hung out with them a, a lot and became real friends with Nick and he used to invite me to go see them at, at different stadiums and stuff. We had a great time. <laughs> So, so he, you know, and I saw the rise to fame and what that did to them on a personal level and what that stardom really looks like. And I just like, you know, I withdrew myself from that. I kind of like at one point I stopped. I mean, I kept friends with them, but not as much hanging out as I was doing because I saw that both sides of the coin suck hard, you know, because it, you know, either you don't make it and you're struggling, you're doing your thing, or you make it and it becomes like, like a crazy, crazy life and, and it affects people, you know, and they, you know, they, they, they did a lot of things to their minds and, and their lives. And uh, so I, I just went, you know, I'm going to do what's in my heart and do it. If, it, if people like it, fine. If they don't, fine. I like it. I love it. So from then on, I started doing what I needed to do musically uh, 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 that was pleasurable to me. And, uh, and, 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 and it, it brought me joy and, 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 and stuff. And, and I would just do that. And, if I, if it, and so that led to other things, you know, like uh, we can talk about later. But, you know, I even uh, one of the songs I wrote with Warren for last album I, I i wrote this line for him and we were writing this song called uh, disorder in the house and and i had written the first verse and, and in the top bottom of the page i i wrote down uh a fate worse than fame <laughs> that now that a fate worse than fame didn't have anything to do with the verse that i had written for him right his first verse. right but but when he saw it he went, oh, yeah, I like that. I said, oh, I didn't know that it had to go. Oh, yeah, we can use it here. And he, you know, yeah, it's so great, man. That's, ah, oh, man. <laughs> so, but it's the truth. Uh, face worth, you know, people want to be famous, and then you're famous, and you meet this monster. You have to deal with What is, okay, so, ho- Brother Calderon, explain to the layperson and the fan an example of the monster of fame. You don't have to name names, but what did you see with, specifically with people in Fleetwood Mac that, like, was, like, the other end, like, fame sucks? Well, it just became, you know, they were normal people. We were all friends, down to earth. We would just, you know, meet for breakfast at the at the coffee shop, and everybody was scrounging to, to pay for the, you know, coffee and eggs and whatever. Right. And and, and it became to this thing that it was like, uh, like uh, so much money and so much attention and so much pressure and, and, and adulation for them that they had to deal with that. And, and you kind of become, you don't change, you know, with your friends. I mean, there were always beautiful people with me and everything, but it, it, I could see how they were changing into what they had to do, the pressures and the, you know, the drugs and the drinking and the, everything became otherworldly, like, like really exaggerated and it right. affected all of them, you know? So, I saw that and I went like, you know what, I, you know, when I grew up, I was saying, oh man, man, you know, I would love to be like Elvis Presley, one of those guys that make it, made it really bad. No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that because yeah. look at where they, all the people, look at where they end up. Uh, I'm telling you, man, it's, I mean, it's just like, yeah, wow. So I'd rather do my thing, put my records out, like I said, right now. I love what I'm doing. I love these songs. I love my performances and what I'm playing. If, if the people out there love it, wonderful. If they don't, I love it. I'm going to keep doing it on the record. <laughs> you know? Amen, dude. Straight ahead, man. You know, and, and to me, like, that's the point is that it also, 
I don't know. I mean, even just finding that that old record, I mean, I think it holds up, you know, better today. But, you know, to be able to come back and sort of document uh, sort of the beginnings of your career as a leader, that that's, I kind of wanted you to talk about, uh, you know, any any one of the cats like Rye or Warren, like, Give it. Give an example of like leadership on the bandstand. Uh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, okay. I'll I'll go away in order. Like, listen, uh, David Lindley, who I have in my heart right now, he's not he's not doing well, and I don't want to go into it. But it's all right. We, uh, we'll pull, yeah, we pray for him, man. Yeah, yeah. We're pulling for him, yeah. trying to help his family, and uh, <clears throat> so. But he was a joy. I, 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 David Lindley. Is and was with all he was a virtuoso. I mean, I played with him from the beginning of the eighties to the end of the eighties, like all that decade. I played with David Lindley Ray Rex. Like, and, and being on stage with him, he every almost every night he would do something that he had never done. Wow! Like he, he was a virtuoso. That's that's the perfect word for David Lindley. Right. Because Dave would would, would play the stuff and we're playing the song that we played the night before and everything but he, all of a sudden he would do something that it was like where would this come from and he was that kind of guy right, you know? right, right, right. And, and and also the beauty about david is his sense of humor he was such a funny guy that we had so much fun on stage off stage on on the buses and everything that we never had a we had a problem. It was it was all it was hard to 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 leave the band to do something else because we had so much fun and we had such a a, a good combination of of, of, of us, you know. Because I, I was one of the few guys that stayed, even though other guys changed in the band through the years. So anyway, so that's Davis and uh, Rye. It's like another monster. Well, no. Before we before we go on for a minute, the, the on the yeah. uh, like. How did the tours, uh, when you first started with Lindley, what kind of bills were you on? Like, it's fascinating to me, like, who you would share a bill with. His music is is almost genreless music. Yeah, and we were, in, in the 80s, you know... The, uh, yeah, it changed a lot. Yes, uh, thank God for, for Bob Marley and people like that that were coming up in the 80s. Uh, actually, he had been there before, but... but uh, yeah, he passed in was, 80 or 81, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was. He, yeah, he passed away in '81. But, but I'm saying that all that stuff became so it was getting more popular here, right. not in Europe. In Europe, the, he was big there, and uh, and other things like that. Uh, were, so we were we were playing. It was an eclectic kind of band. We would do reggae, we would do rock and roll, we did New Orleans stuff. You know, it was like a more of a worldly kind of band, uh, a world music kind of band. Right, right. But still. Still, very uh, natural, like like homegrown. In other words, not not like gimmicky. <clears throat> so, well, what we did was uh, we started doing clubs. We started doing clubs up and down California, and we would pack them up, and they would break the bar. Everybody would drink so much; it was fun music. And you know, we always went to to these places. And <laughs> And we made so much money at the bar because, you know, everybody always go, well, that's good. Right. Uh, and then we started opening up for... Like, what were the... Like, I'm so curious about, like, early 80s clubs in L.A. that, like, where you, or, or in, in, in San Francisco where you played. Like, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, well, uh, pretty, uh, pretty much all the time we were the headliner. You know, and then we, they would get a, a, a smaller act, either one person or, or a little trio or something like that. But when we went on to bigger stages, right. we opened up for Tom Petty and Heartbreaker. Wow. We opened up for Joe Walsh uh, a couple of times. We opened up for uh, Little Feet, I think it was. Beautiful. A gig with them. Uh, you know, like uh, uh, things like that. Then we op- then we we. We had uh, other people. We, oh, we opened up for Jimmy Cliff for like a, a couple of weeks, and he was lovely, a lovely man and a lovely wow. brother. I mean, he was just fantastic. Wow. Friendly to, friendly to us and such a nice, nice person. And uh, so so it was bills like that. And we opened up for some other African high life kind of guys. I've heard of Bundu, Bundu, Bundu. 
uh, I forget the name now, but the, we did that, that kind of through the eighties. You know, we did stuff like that. Were you still on stage? Were you playing without any in ear monitors? Like, do you, is that something you've ever done too? Like, uh, to me, like it's important to hear your natural environment. You know, those. Yeah, uh, me too. Me too. I don't. I don't use those hands. Those yeah, it's bullshit. Hands. No, no. I, I never. I stopped going on tour and stuff like that uh, before the wave of people doing that. Uh, you know, <laughs> so so I never fell into that category of using ear earphones and stuff. It was always monitors in front of you and around you. And it was all the because I liked the ambience of the room. Right. You know, I was playing like I started with a Rickenbacker bass, and then I graduated. You know, then I had a Gibson Les Paul bass. It was amazing sounding, but then it fell and it cracked. And I ended. I went back to Fender, and I stayed with a Fender jazz bass. And I had an SVT, and then I had that. You know, I just stayed very homespun. Like all my my heroes as bass players were were like that. They used a Fender bass with a an SVT or a Fender amp or sure, you know, just like 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 Duck Dunn and Willie Weeks and James Jamison and and all those great great players. It was just like do your thing, be a bass player, play your bass, no gimmicks. You know, I dig, man. I freaking love it, man. Yeah. Um, I I also one more question. Um, uh. The gym, like, like attitudes, were you, did you manifest, were you going down to the Jim Keltner fan club nights? No, what is that? They were like, <laughs> I'll read you this passage. You're going to love this, dude. I'll have to find it. I'm just wondering about, like, your interactions with, like, Paul Stallworth, Cooch, Keltner, like, how you, you sang with them, but I, I was just, my hunch told me that you were, hanging with those guys in the studios during jam sessions and stuff. Well, oh yeah, uh, okay, so this is, this is, I knew Paul Stallworth for a long time. Wow, dude, you he, knew Stallworth? When did yeah, you first meet Stallworth, man? Wow. I, I met Stallworth through Smitty. Of course, through, uh, of course. Through, yeah, through, through William, William Smith. And, Smitty. And, uh, and so, I, so we started hanging out, of course, he played bass and I played rhythm guitar and I was doing my record. Starting my record with Warner Brothers, so he, we used to. I used to go to his house and just sit down and jam and play all kinds of stuff. And then we went to this guy and we would just come up with some crazy uh, uh, beats and uh, I mean uh, grooves and stuff. And we record the stuff and and uh, and then later on, after we did my album and he played on on, uh, on a few things on my record, he uh, later on. Uh, Became the bass player with Keldner on the on the group Attitudes with Danny Cooch, <clears throat> and uh, and so I, they invited me to go sing, and uh, <laughs> so we went there. But uh, but I I, I I don't think I did any jamming with them. I just went there to sing that day. But I knew yeah. Paul way before, and Keldner and Paul uh, played on uh, all the faces, and I. I, I I where 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 are the recordings of you and I need the recordings of you and Stallworth, dude. Oh yeah, well you know, unfortunately he passed away about a year or two ago. He and, did. Uh, did he, he passed he, away? Oh yeah, Paul. Oh yeah, he passed away about two years. I did. Ago. I did. I got to send you my interviews with him. Oh great. Yeah, dude, you're gonna lose oh, your was, mind, man. He was a great guy. Great guy. Wow. You know, yeah, actually, Keltner, a, Keltner said that he, if out of all those cats, he should have been the star. Yeah, he should have been the star. He was a groove guy. He was oh, nothing for everything for the music, everything for the groove, a loving kind of guy, uh, just amazing, amazing human being. Uh, but it just never worked for him. Uh, I mean, that happens. I mean, there's a lot of unsung sung heroes. Totally. And uh, and he was one. And now he, my, a good friend, Tish, who used to be a Smitty first wife, who's still with us here, and she's my very good friend, told me that he had left all the all those tapes, and he had uh, tried to transfer them to to digital. And so maybe Amani, who's uh, Smitty's son, might might know where to find all that stalwart stuff. I, I'll have to ask him. That would, well, so either way, like that to me. 
those grooves, that would be some of the, I would love to hear some of that stuff. But, I mean, what about Cooter, man? Like, uh, well, okay, so yeah. Cooter, uh, like I said, he he uh, he fired a his bass player, Tim Drummond, at some point after playing with him for, for a while. And uh, and so they asked me to, to audition, and I, I did, and I got the gig. So I started playing with him. And I soon found out that he was just this amazing, just as amazing as Lindley. Or, I mean, they're, they're both two birds, uh, two wings of the same bird, in other words. Like, they, they just, like, an the problem that created for me that is that when I, at the end of the 80s, when I stopped playing with those guys, it was hard for me to play with, the, with, with just a guitar player. The guitar players would come, and I'd play, and i go, dude, that all you got is like what, yeah. what's going on i mean what you know because these, these guys have so much knowledge and sound and they dig deep they dig a deep trench you know soulful <sighs> especially rye i mean rye knows i mean right hey you know all that you know keith richard stole a lot of stuff i'm sorry i i read his book and he, he's like he didn't want to cop to it but rye told me Wait, hold on a second. He, wait, did he go? Did he even? Did he? He acknowledged Rye as an influence, but didn't didn't say he stole licks from Rye. Yeah, he yeah he said something like, "Oh yeah, no, I already knew the G the G tuning, but uh, uh, you know, but Rye can't, you know." No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Like, yeah. Rye, Rye is a guy that didn't does not bad rap anybody. But we've had a conversation, sure, about that, and he told me the songs that he that flown to England. And he was, uh, you know, they wanted him to play in these songs, and so they jammed for a while. And he goes like, <laughs> he was giving them all this stuff, thinking that that we were all jamming. And then, you know, and then he, uh, like a, a week passed, and then he called the studio over here. Are we jamming today? Oh, I, I don't, I don't know. Nothing's happening. Yeah. And you could hear in the background that they were doing stuff. So he got the drift. That these guys, all they had done, it was like suck the blood out of, out of him. Wow. And now they were doing their thing with it. So he kind of left. He went back to L.A. So I said, so dude, so which songs? He said, well, they wrote all these songs on the stuff that I was laying down. And I said, well, which ones? And he mentioned like five uh, five songs that were like hits later on. I mean, on the Talk Women, he mentioned Brown Sugar, he mentioned... Like uh, uh, tumbling down, he he mentioned all these songs that that were like what? He said, wow, yeah. dude! <laughs> Whoa, dude! That's insane. He, he told, yeah, he told me, listen, Jorge, I don't, you know, I, we're talking here, but I don't, I don't want any, you know, that's what they do. He explained to me. Here's the thing in L.A. and I, this is right talking. He said in L.A. we were all sharing. I learned a lot of the blues, the deep blues stuff, and guitar stuff, and I would share it. And I would, I, I would have this thing that I wanted to other people to hear this and know how to do it, and, and you know, I want to like pass it. And over there, I found that they were everybody was guarded. Everybody was like really like, oh, don't let you know the yardbirds hear this. Don't let this. Right. One. It was they yeah. Were all, they were all like because they were learning the shit. The, they were learning the stuff from from the estates. They were removed in this other island called Britain. So uh, they, you know, they they didn't want anything. Grabs onto something with with the, the, all their lives, right? So he says that's what that's what I saw it I saw it I knew what it was they didn't want to share a bit they want to take in and do what they needed to do and then I said but I come, I came from a place right talking like that he said I come from a place where we were sharing we were passing it on and exchanging between us all the wrecking crew guys all those guys were lovely people that were sharers right but we but it was a different scene in London so he explained to me, and that's why he wasn't angry about it or or, or remorseful about it, having done it or said, you know, whatever. They, whatever they use. I said, but did they give you any royalties? He said, well, at some point they put a they put a record out, an LP called Jamming with Edward, uh, and it was jamming and with Rye and them, 
and and then they gave they gave him all the royalties from that record. Now that record wasn't a big hit, but he says I don't want anything from them. I I do I I love what that's fantastic. I mean you know um, so he I mean you know Keltner said um, that playing with with Rye sometimes you can get off. I mean in the live settings with Cooter like would you guys be like a couple feet off the ground like elevating pretty well like could you get into a nice improvisational space or was it kind of like like a, a oh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no. It was it was just uh, insane. I mean, it was like really deep, deep trenches and deep. I mean, have you seen on YouTube that uh, the down in Hollywood live with us and uh, up in uh, Santa Cruz? I got to go see that. Part one and part two. I mean, it's it's a, we did a version of, of down in Hollywood that is sixteen minutes long. Wow! And it's just. A funky, funky thing, and we're just like grooving it, and it, and it's just amazing. That's it's, sick. It's part one and part two. Sometimes the YouTube has both parts together with a little splice in between. Sometimes they have them on their own, but a lot of stuff from that concert is on YouTube, and uh, and that was in '88 with the '87 and '88 with the, with the big band, which, which we had. Uh, Pelder, myself, Miguel Cruz on percussion, Van Dyke Parks on, on, on piano keyboards. And then we had horns. We had the Steve Douglas from the Wrecking Crew. We had uh, uh, Flaco Jimenez was there. And we had uh, the singers, like three or four singers. Terry Evans, Bobby King, Arnold McCuller, uh, Willie Green. I mean, it was a, an insane, great band. And we did a lot of stuff. And Rye was just uh, playing his his butt off of the ground, man. I mean, it was just wonderful stuff. And uh, so it was always like always like that. Did you hang with Steve Douglas, dude? I've always tripped out oh, about man. that guy. That, I, I need yeah, to know about no, Steve we, Douglas, man. Dude. We, we became very good friends. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, and on the road, we were always hanging out. And, yeah, it was great. You know, Steve Douglas was a, was a very nice and humble guy. I mean, a guy that played, he never, ever boasted to me about stuff that he had done. He, in, 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 if, if the conversation was about <laughs> something, he said, you know, oh, yeah, man, I, I, you know, I got to, man, I got to play a, the solo on the Blue Run Run. And I, you know, or, yeah, when I used to play with Dwayne Eddy, I was just a kid, man. I, I played on that song, blah, blah, blah. Or he, you know, uh, he played on all the Beach Boy stuff. I mean, he, he was the, the guy that would, used to get the horns for Brian Wilson. The, uh, you know, he would gather, he would say, hey, Steve, I, I need some horns for tomorrow. And exactly, dude. He, yeah, he was, he was the contractor. Right, contractor. And, and he was on Pet Sounds. He was on all those things. And uh, and he he was in love, you know, all the Phil Spector stuff, lost that lost that love feeling, and all that stuff. Yeah, I have these albums with him, like never, yeah. never bragged. Yeah, I love the, the I love it, dude. Fucking a yeah. man. Yeah, man, that's just like the, yeah. being humble about. It. I mean, that to me is I don't know. It's it's okay to be excited, but not not like braggadocious or like boastful. Like to me, like. Just let your let the music speak for itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was like, you know, because other guys that, that are obnoxious are guys that are always dropping names, you know, like, like oh, I, me and this one. Me right, and right, 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 right. He's like, no, no, he wasn't like that. It was all a real thing. I love that we, shit, dude. <laughs> we, we were at a session with Rye in Hollywood at Ocean Way, and, and he says, hey, man, I... I, next door, there's a friend of mine next door I want you to meet, man. Come on, let's take a walk. And we went next door to another building, and he introduced me to Ronnie Spector. And it was Ronnie Spector was, oh, Steve, how are you, my darling? And, you know, hugging him. And, and he said, this is my friend, Jorge. Oh, you come here. And she would hug him like if it was family. Like if he was, if, if you're hanging with Steve, you're family to me. Wow. In other words, you know. So that was a wonderful experience for me and i said man you don't know what that meant to me i said oh man that's great because you know roddy's a great guy, blah, blah, blah. but it was a big thing it wasn't a big deal it was just that it was a magical moment for me <laughs> to have met her 
but he was that kind of guy. He was he's from the old days. He played on all those wonderful records, and he passed away at some point at an early age. Because uh, did you, know, you did you know uh, did you know like uh, Emil Richards or Hal Blaine or any of the Wrecking Crew? The uh, the original Wrecking Hal Crew. Blaine, I met Hal Blaine once. Uh, but shook his hand and spoke to him for several moments at the baked potato. That's it. Uh, Emil Richards. No, I, I wish I, I, you know, I, I, he was fantastic. Uh, what about any I, of the, what about any of the crusaders like Joe Sample or anybody like that? Not Joe Sample. No. Um, no, I uh, yeah, he was a he is. A, I don't know if he's still around, but he's no, no. I interviewed, I interviewed him, Wilton, Wayne, all those guys. They, they, they're, they're all. I mean, I didn't even know. Maybe I, I thought Keltner told me, but I, I'm shocked. Paul, you know, I'm bummed out. Paul, love Paul Shawworth. I'm bummed that he died, man. Yeah, yeah, it's it's gonna be on to a couple of years now. Wow. Yeah. How did you first meet Warren Zevon? Oh man, uh, that was like around 1975. I had just, I was just either finishing the record, the city music, or I had already done it. Uh, he, it was. Uh, remember, I, I told you that that I met Wadi at a gig, uh, you know, early 70s, like 69 or 70, at a gig in Venice. Uh, yeah, right, 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 right. Waddy and his brother. Right. Waddy was, was, was together with this, with this gal, Crystal, who later on became uh, uh, Warren Seymour's uh, wife, later on, years later. And so I know Chris, knew Crystal from that crowd. So we were friends, and one time she, I hadn't met Warren yet. So she called me one, one time, I was living in Hollywood, on myself, and she called me around two in the morning or something like that. And, hey man, Jorge, can you you know I, I'm in a I'm having a, a really bad time here. My boyfriend is in the you know can you can you give me a ride to go get him? He's a, he's a, he's a, like he's in the drunk tank. You know he's like he's been you know put him in jail or being drunk or something. Right. So, right. So I, I I went. Oh yeah, sure. You know all you have to do is like you know. Give us a ride from the uh, the par- you know sh- police place to the to our house to our apartment. I said sure. So I got out and, and do that. When we got to the apartment, uh, it was like he was like all hungover and stuff, and and, and she was like, oh my, you know, I don't have my keys. And you, know, you have your keys. You know, it was like that kind of situation. <laughs> yeah, <I'm not. laughs> the place was. They didn't have their keys because in the in the heat of the, the confusion of the moment, they had messed up. So, so uh, I said, I said, listen, don't. <laughs> it's gonna be funny to you, but I said, I said, listen, don't worry. I'm Puerto Rican. I can get into anybody's house. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I saw that. I saw that. Warren had been looking at the floor all this time. All of a sudden, he looked at me. <laughs> he looked, put his, his head up and looked at me and kind of gave me a little smirk, like, like, ooh, yeah. I like this guy. Right. So, so I went around the, I, I went around the, the apartment and I said, "There's got to be some, something that's loose that you can get in." You know, I said, "Not only that, I'm going to break in, but and guess what? There was a window. You open it up, and I went in and I opened the door for them." And we came in, and it was a, a, a happy ending to the story. So from then on, Warren really liked me and invited me to their house one day. And we just hit it off really well. I mean, wow. it, was, it was just instant. That's freaking awesome, dude. It was instant. It was, we had, he always told me in the, in the, as the years went on that our friendship was so tight and and uh, <clears throat> and endearing that that he said that we that we were kind of traveled the same you know sensibilities were were, were the same and they were traveling the wave same wavelength he would say you know this is wavelength that we travel on it's like it's, it's like we're you know there's nothing to, to absolutely discuss. dude I love it man 
it, he would tell me that he would he would always have problems writing co-writing with other people that there will always be a problem or ego thing or oh like why don't you like that or why don't you like this and with me there was never a problem we would just sit down and write a song and there would be no fucking oh sorry <laughs> no, it's all right no it's uh, all right yeah. <laughs> uh, and it would be no no thing you know what I mean. So that's why we wrote so many songs and I ended up still working at the end, especially on the last record. What is the, uh, like, when did you start? I just want to be clear that you knew a woman who, like, when she called you, how, were, did you know, was that the first time you met Warren was getting him out of jail? Yeah, uh, Crystal, um, Zivon, she became Zivon, Kristen Zivon. She was uh, at the time going out with him, and uh, and she called me to get her boyfriend out of out of the drug tank, and that's how I met Wong. And then I became friends with his, and then later on they got married and had a kid or uh, uh, a daughter. And um, but yeah, that's that's how I met him. Uh, I I uh, I I then found out that he had been playing with the Everly Brothers and Waddy was in the band too so they know, knew him too but I didn't know him wow but I met I met him on this this occasion by, on my own without that other crowd of people so we became and we started working I mean uh, he uh, the next thing I knew he said man I had just I just got a, a record deal Jackson, Jackson Brown he he really pulled pulled the strings at Electra Asylum at Asylum Records, and I'm going to do, he's going to produce my, 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 my record, and I want you to, so he called me, at one point he called me, I want you to sing on this song of mine called I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, and once you come down to the studio there, I like the studios in La Cienega, so I went there, that's when I met Jackson Brown, wow. uh, and that day I sang the harmonies and the, and the, and the stuff on I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, on the Warren Zevon album, uh, and then the next the next album that he started working <clears throat> with was uh, Excitable Boy. Right. Excitable Boy uh, was, um, but I was around to all the, all that stuff with the with the writing, and he say, "Oh man, I wrote this one song," or "Oh, we we just wrote this thing called Worlds of London." And, and, you know, so I had heard Wolves of London as a demo. And wait, wait, hold on. Wait, what, 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 I want to break that down. Wait, you heard that. What was the? What was your first? Do you remember when you first heard it? Oh yeah, it was it was a demo, and I thought it was funny because oh, I knew I knew Wadi and I knew Leroy Marinell, who who are the two guys that wrote it with him. One, each one, each one of them wrote a verse. That's sick. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that and, uh, is so, so I knew that. And then, so when Excitable Bull came around, then they were going to record the song for real on a major label kind of thing, a real record of the song. Right. Because before it was just demos. Uh, so at one point in that in that record, he uh, Warren came to me and said, "You know, I have this song. Actually, the Jackson and Warren came to me." Said, you know, there's a song that's great. It's called Vera Cruz, but it needs it needs a, a part. You know, Warren Warren wants it. You know, Warren says, you know, why don't you listen to this and see if you can come up with with a, a, a Spanish something, a refrain in Spanish to this song. So I listened to the song and I came up with with the part that uh, ended up in the song, and also I filled in uh, a, a line that he was missing on the English part, and he loved it. So he. He, uh, he, he, that was the start of our songwriting thing, and uh, <clears throat> and then we another one that he wanted to do was this thing called uh, Nighttime in the Switching Yard, which was a story uh, written by uh, the same guy that co-wrote uh, Roland the Head with Thompson Gunner, with him, uh, Lindy, uh, 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 and David Lindell, I think it was his last name, Lindell. And uh, so he says, you know, the, the story, all he had was the story. The story is, it's a, it's a switching yard. This guy works at a switching yard, 
and he, he switches the train. So the, the scene is that we're at night, the trains are coming, but the, but the switching guy is a junkie. So he's <clears throat> so he's uh, he's about to, to switch, make the switch so the trains could could, could could go through different tracks, but he he nods out, and you know so and I was going <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, so I you know so we were just like we was going it's at nighttime and switching yard. Yeah, and I said, "Oh yeah, cool." So we started, and Wadi was Wadi was with us. So it was the three of us. Oh my god! So we were god. trying to, to make this. Story. So I wrote I wrote a verse, kind of depicting what what it would be like. The guy nods out, and you know all that stuff. But the song was so long because it was a groove song, and it's a big intro at the beginning, a long intro. So it, it would be too long to have a, that verse. So. So that verse was not in the in the thing, which when you hear it, you go get it out on the main line. Like you you don't think that main line means the vein, and um, you know, see, you know, it's like see the train coming both ways. You know, like we hear all this stuff, and it's like surreal, but it really doesn't to, to get to the real story that Lindell wrote. Right. But when I when I do the song myself in the rec I always put the, the verse that I wrote on it so that, so that I complete the, the the idea. But but that's another one that we wrote, me, uh Warren and Wadi together. Uh he had uh, Wadi had that you know, he put that guitar you know, that, that thing that release it has it has. So we, we all collaborated on that one. Would you play bass? Would you play bass live with Warren? You know, when I played with Warren in 1978, after that, he had gone on tour after Werewolves became a hit and stuff. <clears throat> he went out with Rick Murata on drums, Wadi on guitar. Yeah, rhythm guitar was, uh, I think, uh, David uh, Landau. Uh, John Landau's brother. Wow. And uh, John Landau, the, the Bruce Springsteen's manager. Right, not, right, not the other, right. Another guitar player. And, uh, and then it's, uh, who else? And Warren. And I, I think that was it. So they, they gig for a while, but then in the middle of the tour in 78, he uh, called me, Warren called me, and said, you know, I need you, man. I need you. Iwadi and, and Murata are leaving, and I'm, I'm going to have to like keep going with uh, on my tour with a, a, a new drummer, and, a, and I need a guitar. So, so I went into the into the band. Landau became the lead player, and I became the rhythm guitar player and the singer. So I, that's that's what I played. Well, you just band. stepped in there and and pulled that off, no problem. Well, yeah, I, I learned some of the songs I didn't know. Yes, of course, uh, I had to do my woodshedding, but I did. But you kind of had, had a, you didn't really have a lot of time to think about it. I mean, the tour was still going on. You had to get out there and just it, go. There, well, I'll tell you, I was on the road with uh, Mick Fleetwood had, had gotten me into this gig with uh, Bob Wells. Right. Bob Wells had, had, a, had a big record out with all this stuff and, and he needed somebody that could sing some stuff that could sing like we had sung and you know it's like what and, and they already had the band so I ended up like playing acoustic guitar and singing with the band but I was I felt like I was like an added you know like I wasn't really doing what I can do it's just like an added piece that they needed right and so when when warren called and i and i said oh man that would be great because there I, I i'm playing with the band i'm playing electric guitar with the band and singing with the dude that i've been working with <clears throat> i told bob welch and, and bob was really cool about it he said all right go do it man it's fine don't worry i'll get a percussionist that can you know i can sing and whatever and so, so we, we parted ways and he was he was a gentleman he was great Bob Bob was a really nice guy, a really good guy. So I went with Warren and I did that, and uh, and that's that's what that was. It ended up, and then uh, but that's the only time that I played with Warren live. Well, later I played some 
some self special things here. There was a benefit that we did in the nineties. I played bass and one played guitar and stuff. But but back then I only played on that tour. Now what what I wanted to tell you about Warwolves of London is Yeah. Warwolves of London <clears throat> I I had gone to I had gone to to Miami, and Mick Cleaver had called him in. Uh, you know, the, I got a ticket for you to come to Miami. We're playing this, this big, big. Sorry, I can't do the English accent, but anyway, <laughs> we're playing this big stadium in Miami, and uh, ninety thousand people and all this stuff. And I want you to come down. And, and, you know, so I went there, and I and believe me, I I, I just throughout the concert, I was sitting on on, on Mick Fleetwood's, uh Drum riser, yeah. Drum, drum uh, platform, there. yeah. Right next to him, and and just like having a great time with him while, while the whole Fleetwood Mac thing was going on, and uh, so we had a great time. When I came back to L.A., I went straight to to uh, to the studio, the Sound Factory in Hollywood, because that's where I had been going almost every day. Uh, while Warren was recording, because even though it wasn't just because of the songs we wrote, it was because I was singing backgrounds with with the guys with the Jackson and Wally and J.D. Souther and people like that, but Kenny Edwards, we, we all became the, the guys that sang, sang the backgrounds. Wow. So I was going there every day. So when I came back, there was nobody there. But, and they said, oh, Waddy's in the back in the, in the office. So I went to the, to the office in the back, and Waddy was there, and he was like all sad, you know, long face. And, and I said, dude, what's going on? So, oh, man, we're just, you know, we, this is the, like the sixth time that we tried Rolls of London, and we tried all these rhythm sections. We have great, great players, and nobody can really nail the song. It's just like, I guess it's too simple. It's too something that they just cannot, we cannot give it, you know, it can't happen. And I said, you how about making John? And, and he went, he looked at me like, really? He said, yes. Wow. Don't you think? I can call Mick right now. He said, oh man. So I, I called me. Oh I called my Mick. God. Yeah, right. So I called Mick and I said, "Man, would you like to do this?" And yeah, you and John. He said, "Oh yeah, all right. So let's let's do it." So, to put it simply, I was the guy with the jumper cables when 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 Roddy and Jackson and them needed a hell a, a jump, and I'm proud to be that guy, and I'm glad it happened. <laughs> you know, Dude, because. I think you're blessed. You're so blessed, man. Yeah, because because you yeah, know what, like we just talked about before, the the you're you're connected to all the cats, but yet you're not having to deal with the insanity of of fame. Well, that that's exactly. It was you know, it's like uh, you know, I've I've read, I I, I really like uh, reading books about directors, you know, like John sure. Houston and uh, famous directors because I love directing because it's almost like being a record producer in a way. And, uh, and and there's people like that. You find out that, that this guy said something to somebody and all of a sudden, oh, yeah, that's good. And all of a sudden it becomes this majestic thing that happened in history because just somebody brought that idea right. or made the exactly. connection or called the guy, hey, you want to talk to this guy because he needs this. And that's, that's exactly what I did. And But, you know... Uh, Macon John and Fleetwood Mac was so big at the moment that it actually helped. Not only that they played it the way it should have been played and sounded like a hit record, but it also the aura of it was Fleetwood and John McVeigh and Fleetwood Mac on this record. It gave it a, a little push. So it was it, it worked for everybody. It was wonderful. What, what was the was what was the groove like before that wasn't getting? I can't even imagine what I mean because that is such well, a that's the thing. You see, a song when it's like 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 we were talking about Kiss and Run yesterday. When when a song is that simple, you know, it's like oh that's easy because it's simple. No, you're wrong. But sometimes the simplest songs are the ones that are the hardest. Steve Gadd said the same get, thing, man. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Yeah. If you don't get the right 
feel. Uh, it's the feel, the yeah. Approach, yeah. The feel and the approach to it that'll make it be something peculiar. It's got to have then, a. It's got to still have a pulse. Then you'll you know? sound. Yeah. Then you'll sound like like everybody. You know, right. you'll sound like everybody playing a stupid song, like sugar, sugar. You know, like like you know, you hear Wilson Pickett's version, and and you get that boom. That's Al Jackson or somebody like that playing that song. Boom. So that's what happened with well, was that Mick Fleetwood has his beat, and John McVie is a perfect bass player for him, and 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 it happened. It happened. And then Waddy, you know, everybody it was great. I was I was there. Take 52. Um, mean, and, and, and listen, take 52 because we were having fun. They were having fun. It was, you know, it could have been take two or four, but they kept playing and playing and playing, and then all of a sudden. Wow, <laughs> dude. 52, yeah. man. Dude, yeah. Jorge Calderon, man, I love you, man. Let, let's, I, I gotta hop, but let's do part three and stay in touch, man. I feel so humbled that God put us together, man. Yeah, let's do one about about uh, Warren and, and the stuff with the with the records we made, especially the wind, which is gonna be. It has been uh, we uh, remastered it, and it's gonna be out on vinyl. Uh, remastered especially for vinyl. It's going to be out in April of this year. Oh, that's fa- oh, uh, perfect, dude. Uh, yeah. On on record uh, day, uh, record store day, whatever they call it. Yeah. Uh, and it's going to be wonderful. It sounds amazing. Way better than it sounded before 20 years ago. It's just like remastered beautifully. It has a depth and a sound to it. It's, it's just wonderful. Oh, man. So we'll, we'll do that whenever, whenever you want, man. Yeah, man. No, I appreciate you, and and you know, uh, accept my friend request on Facebook because I'm transcribing some of the stories. People are like, I, I transcribed the one about Lindley saying you're the bass player. People love that, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> you know, the truth is, man, like, you know, we, he needs he needs the vibration to be raised right now for his health, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we're doing that, man. So you know, keep keep doing your thing, man. Okay. Man. All right. Be cool. Okay. Peace.